Everybody, welcome back to our second interview of today for our Women of Climate series. Today, we tackled initially one very hard to abate industry, which, Julie, I've been told by Magdalene Anderson, who is the Chief Innovation and Sustainability Officer at Wholesome, the world's largest cement company, that we shouldn't be referring to cement or textiles as hard to abate industries, but full of opportunity industries or full of opportunity segments, which were which was the way it was described today. In a lot of ways, I think when I think about hard to abate or opportunity segments, I think of textiles, petrochemicals, cement, steel, under that one umbrella of this is going to be hard, right? right. And everyone, Julie Willoughby is the Chief Science Officer at a wonderful innovation company called Cirque, which is best described, and I'll get you to describe it in detail in a second, Julie, but a textile circularity company that is looking to recycle clothes back to their original original materials, the recycling of polycottons back into reusable fibres. And I know that it is, is technically much more difficult than that, and I'm going to get you to explain all that in a second. But everyone, as per normal, there is a Q&A function at the bottom of the screen. Please pop your questions in there for Julie. But Julie, before I get you to dive into your presentation, I'm going to get you to explain a little bit about how you got to be where you are today as the Chief, the Chief Science Officer at CERC. All right. Well, thank you, Paul, so much for hosting me and what my company's doing on Climate Transformed. I'm really excited to share what we're doing. And I love that point about it's not about barriers to abatement. It's about the opportunities. I mean, we have to do this as, as a society. We have to take these energy intensive processes that we've that have made our lives very comfortable and and do the the hard stuff in between. And I I like to say that all my roads led to Cirque. So I'm a chemical engineer by training, 30 plus years in the industry. I will say I took a, a lot of different like venues throughout my career. So I had 11 year traditional chemical industry career at Dow Corning, now Dow Chemical. Did everything from the lab all the way taking out to manufacturing. I then went on and and decided to go a little deeper and got my PhD in chemical engineering, which then took me as a, a senior scientist into the pulp and paper industry. Well, after that, I ended up in the College of Textiles and was leading a research group and also teaching senior design to seniors and for their capstone course. And that introduced me to Nike. So then I had six years at Nike, which I got to be part of an amazing organization where really it's about the potential. It's about the human potential. And that that is what Nike represents, that brand. I mean, everything is achievable and and you beyond your wildest imagination. And the innovation there is around maximizing that human potential. And so I was in a group called Material Science Innovation, where we looked at really early stage technology and to see how that can be brought to the athlete. I then went on to look at, at methods of make is what we called it for footwear and looked at new manufacturing methods to minimize the amount of chemistry that we're putting in footwear. And then during that time, I had the opportunity to really work with the fabulous factory partners that that we have in in the Nike supply chain. And I saw the issues with with how much, like what I'll call scrap. I hate using the word waste because it's like textile scrap. It's untapped resources. And then when I when Cirque found me, it was like a segue into everything I've done before to make it actually come full circle to take those textiles and put them into the their original raw materials to make new product. So a lot of us, I have, and many folks listening, have done that leap from corporate to startup, right? The smile on your face when you started talking about Nike says to me that you had a you had a fabulous experience there. Oh, I did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So tell me, tell me about the thought process that gets you to leave somewhere where you were clearly happy, right? You know, again, you just, the, the, you know, the, way you're, the way you started smiling as soon as you mentioned the word Nike was, yeah, it was an indication of that. Talk a little bit about that thought process and what you saw in Cirque to get you to take that leap from something which was, I assume, something which was profitable personally in, in every facet of that to this bloody big risk whether it was this startup company called Cirque. Yeah, so I think there's a few things, both in my academia position where I was doing awesome technology that was supported by, I actually got it funded through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It was around cellulosic. So it was like deep 
in some ways it was deep science, in some ways it was really simple. And, and in that simpleness of it, it actually got to commercial scale. So as like a traditional, and I'm kind of answering your question a little bit long, as a, a traditional scientist and research, those are the types of things you do. You study the hard science, you publish the hard science, you disseminate information. The opportunity to bring that into Nike was transformative for myself. And where I was there for six years in two different roles, and Nike is so vast and amazing. There's many things you can do. But as I was looking at to where my impact was, I also had the good fortune of of working with those early those early Nike people that have their own Wikipedia page. Bruce Kilgore, who designed the Air Force One, Tom McGurk, who was in designing it, and they would talk about talk about bringing Nike up. I mean, that was in the DNA of Nike was its early starts. And when I reflected on that, it's like, wow, I actually was in a position in my life and career that I could have been part of that. And it's like, I want to be part of a startup. I want to do something impactful. I have a PhD in chemical engineering. Yeah, you know, Nike is a great place, but can I use my knowledge and my experience to for, for greater impact? And that's how I ended where I am at Cirque. That's great. Do me a favor, share your screen. Let's walk through the presentation. And we'll, again, we'll dive into a bit, a bit more, into a lot more depth, but, uh, you know, about 20 minutes or so. Okay, great. So what is Cirque? We're on a mission to protect the planet from the cost of clothing. I and mean, you don't really think, I think one is, is how much impact the fashion industry has on our, on our carbon emissions. And Cirque, once clothes aren't going to change, people want to wear nice clothes and we want to protect our human consumption by being able to create this circular economy. And just why is this a problem? Why does the fashion industry have a problem? Well, First, first off, the plastics, two and a half more times polyester or PET, so PET bottles, are used in the fashion industry as compared to the beverage industry. That's huge. Viscose and, and rayon products, and those are, those are being made through deforestation and through, through using trees to create these cotton-like fibers. And those cotton-like fibers are great. Because you, you need a, a man-made cotton-like fat fiber because it comes to a point like the amount of arable land that's available for cotton, we're already at the peak and it keeps decreasing 2% annually. And there's a study that someone told me about that by the year 2035, as a society, we were going to have to make a choice. Do you use that land to grow cotton or do you use it to grow food for people? And you're obviously going to grow food for people, I hope. And so with that, the cotton is in jeopardy for the clothes that we love. And then if you look at like the average lifespan, and we're all climate conscious, so we don't, we can say this is a generalized statement, but it's like seven wears per article of clothing. And for every article of clothing in sorry, your- Sorry, 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 Julie. Clearly, clearly I have an old, old wardrobe. It's seven, seven wears. Seven wears, yes. Yeah, seven wares. And when you and you and a lot of that has been fueled by I mean, fast fashion and in designing cheaper clothing and trending styles. But really when you look at what fast fashion did and, and where it's gotten to us as a society, you've really democratized high style. So in the 50s, high style was only available to the wealthy. Well, now you can be stylish and be in a middle class bracket. And it, as the emerging economies are coming out, a sign of well-being is that you you can afford to present yourself in the way you want to, and everyone has their own unique style. Yeah, so seven wear seems like way too much. It's a it's or too little and too much excess of clothing, right? So we have to do something with that. All the these factors combined, not to mention is. The fashion industry represents 10% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. And that's that's double the amount that all, if you put all the fuels used in aviation and maritime, that amount is double for the fashion industry. It's a, people don't really think about where where what happens to the clothes once we get rid of them. We think by giving them to a second hand or goodwill that they're being utilized. And they may indeed not be. And, and as I already mentioned, that this is just reemphasizing that 
fashion accounts for a fifth of the world's plastic produced globally each year. And 60% plus of clothing is a polycotton blend, which I'm going to get into why that is an opportunity for us and in tapping into a resource that we never thought was possible. And just another fun statistic is it takes about, you know, when I joined and started on this journey and people were like, what are you doing? There's already recycled clothing out there. How is your, they love, people love to ask startups, how is your solution unique? Well, those recycled content clothing that you're using are made from water bottles. And I say water, but basically your bottles. And so it takes five bottles to create one shirt. And what it does, that bottle, it only delays that bottle from the landfill or being incinerated by by one life cycle, basically the life cycle of that shirt. You know, current recycling solutions aren't enough for for what's going out there because only 6% of materials are actually recycled in the U.S. And when it comes to textiles, it's greater than 13 million tons are being sent directly to incineration or landfill. And that amount is like $50 billion worth of clothes. I think I have that number. Yeah, $50 billion worth of raw materials because clothes can be a raw material um, that are either being burned or or incinerated or sent to the landfill. And it's, it's because blended textiles cannot be recycled. They're, they're more complicated. You might ask, why do we have blended textiles? Is because we're people who like lots of things. So imagine running in a cotton t-shirt is going to get really wet and soggy. And I actually do remember doing that back in the 80s and, and 70s growing up. And you get really, you're, you're, you're weighed down with just a cotton t-shirt. So the polyester's in there because it doesn't want the, the water, but then it doesn't feel nice without a little bit of cotton. And that's why this blended poly cotton is such a popular fabric to make apparel out of. And so I said it couldn't be recycled until now. So we have this solution to to recycle polyester cotton textiles. I'm just gonna play a video to show you a little bit more what that means. So we've worn clothes for forever, right? Mother nature swaddled us with the shirt off her back. We used her natural resources for a long time. And then we started using some unnatural resources, polyester, nylon, acrylic, plastic. More than 60% of clothes have some sort of plastic in them. So when clothes get disposed of, Mother Nature suffers. And that's not how you repay someone who's given you the shirt off their back. Now, some people try to reduce plastic waste by using old plastic bottles to make new clothes, but that doesn't really solve the clothing waste problem. So a few of us thought, hey, why don't we just use old clothing to make new clothing? And then scientific precedent was all like, well, you can only sort of do that because there's no way to separate the plastics from the natural materials. So we were like, oh, no way. We'll just figure that out. We combined advanced chemistry degrees, three tech hubs, and a whole lot of old clothes to turn fashion lines into fashion circles with some of the world's most future-minded partners. We are on a mission to protect the planet from the cost of clothing. We are hard at work unsticking the polyester from cotton and other planty fibers they're woven with and getting those resources ready to be a clothing fiber all over again. Because we believe we have all the clothes we need to make all the clothes we'll ever need. And if clothes can just be clothes, then we can let Mother Nature have her shirt back. So now that we've come full circle, why not come with us? That's right. Thank you. You know, so what is this solution that we've talked about? And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail in, in a later slide, but I wanted to highlight it in this format first is we can we take waste polycotton. So that's my untapped resource. And that's sourced from waste aggregators, brands, supply chain. When the pandemic hit and retail, everything was under lockdown, suddenly warehouses filled up with, with content. That content came to us. So we were we were turning away material because we we just didn't have the capacity to take it. And and with that, that's why we're here. It's because there is such a value driver for this. It's a lower input cost than taking virgin material. So ordinarily if you were making polyester, you'd be using chemicals from from petroleum, from from the fossil fuels. So you would be taking that, you'd be then taking in polymerizing it and then making your polyester fiber. We already have the polyester made, so why don't just reuse it? 
is one stream. And then the same on the cotton. Why would you throw away perfectly good cotton when we can pull it out? And then what our products are, are poly, circular polyester and circular lyocell. Now, lyocell, what is that? It's not a prevalent. If you look at the label in your clothes, you probably, you may or may not see it in your clothes. It's a, it's a man-made cellulosic fiber that can feel like cotton because it is cotton. It's, well, it's cellulose. It's cellulose from trees. The lyocell process is the most responsibly sourced and environmentally, it uses a very environmentally benign process to create create this lyocell fiber. So it is the most sustainable process to make man-made cellulosic fibers. And on the on the polyester side, well, we're just simply taking after we separate it in our factory and that we do have a lower processing cost when we model that out because we have savings from vertical integration and also combining with high yields and because we're not having to start from fossil fuels to to make a circular polyester. And we're not having to use the energy to chop down trees and extract out the cellulose from the tree. We already have the cotton that comes out and the cotton goes into lyocell. So this would this lyocell fiber would replace anything where you see viscose and rayon and those are not environmentally sound processes and they are making strides, but not like you can do with the process that we have. The one thing to highlight here is that we do at scale, and we were talking earlier, Paul, is what does scale mean is we do compete with Virgin on cost. And just a, a visual, this cool visual, which I love, it's, it was a black t-shirt before our process. And we put it in our process. This is the actually same t-shirt. So we just cleverly photoshopped it and put it together where that black t-shirt turned to the one on the right. And that one on the right is what we call a cotton skeleton because 80% of that material was made up of polyester. So what happens when it goes into our process is we are able to turn that polyester into a liquid. And when we turn that into a liquid, then we're easy. It's just like a strainer. You can just pull out the cotton that's left over. We clean it up and it makes what we call 100% cotton pulp. And it's that cotton pulp versus wood pulp that we feed into the lyocell process. The other thing that comes out is it's, it's not like polyester chips right away. We actually break the polyester down into its starting building blocks. Those are called monomers. And we repolymerize those monomers into chip that can then be made into fiber. And then the other thing that we do in this, you see you go from black to white. We right now, instead of sending all these, these t-shirts, just imagine a thousand t-shirts going to a landfill. Those are all full of dyes. Well, what we do is we extract those dyes and we responsibly capture them. And a little bit deeper on our technology. So this is what we're doing. How are you doing this separation? I like to say I'm, we're liquefying polyester. So my family, when I explain the technology to them or they see something, are like, just keep liquefying that polyester. And it is what happens is during, we, we put it into a reactor. Think of a pressure cooker that if you do canning, it just, you, you put it into the reactor and under, under heat, water behaves very differently than water at room temperature. So you keep all the water in and it is like a pressure cooker, but it's at mild conditions, meaning that we're not taking it to extreme high pressures. And during that process, the water reacts with the polyester. And that is a process called hydrolysis. So that's the liquid. And then after it comes out and it literally does go through like a colander it is a technical like it goes through a press that you squeeze out that liquid and then what's left over is the cotton and if you put big big like a big t-shirt and that we actually did that otherwise you wouldn't have seen that t-shirt on the previous slide when you take that t-shirt and process it it's going to come out like a threadbare cotton t-shirt now the whole thing of getting to commercial viability and doing this at scale, you have to drive costs. And that's where being a chemical engineer has is, is been hugely valuable in trying to bring this technology into what is now a recycling process. So we're beyond proving the technology. We have a recycling process that once the cotton comes out, we can replace tree pulp. And that's the cellulose that feeds into these beautiful silky garments. And then on the liquid side, the polyester monomer side, we simply 
purify the monomers through standard unit operations that are well known in the chemical industry. And because we're doing this like a whole new, it's a whole new really recycling process and industry, we're doing it and designing it to be zero carbon and zero liquid discharge. Because every every byproduct that comes off our stream can be either sent back to the beginning of our process or be sold as viable product. And just what we like, we can do any ratio of polyester to cotton. So we can recycle 100% cotton, we can recycle 100% polyester and anything in between. The anything in between is where the vast majority of textile scraps are located. So there are, there we I don't call them competitors because we need all of us in this field, all the innovators and entrepreneurs in order to solve the problem of textile waste going, textile, valuable textile, scrap going to landfills or going going in you saw that desert in the film i mean literally those those containers full of clothing that's going to being shipped off seas only a very little bit of that is used and you see the rest ending up in deserts and then the the other thing is like what kind of textiles can you take and it's anything from post industrial so that means if Anyone out there does any kind of sewing or construction with fabric, you always have something left over. And it's that leftover that, you know, before this was really made aware of the the huge problem that was coming, it's just being thrown away. We we are not going to let that post-industrial scrap be thrown away. We're going to intercept it and it's our feedstock. And, And everyone that's creating that scrap is motivated and they're motivated to have someone take care of it. And the post-consumer are like where you would see as we progress in our in our commercialization and as we grow as a company, it can easily see where you're walking into, say, a Target and dropping all your, your clothes into a bin that gets sent to us. Not unlike the Goodwills. And, and the, the Goodwills, those are, we, we've actually taken bins from Goodwill and we've recycled them. And that's the post-consumer. This is just, a, it's always fun to show, okay, you're making, you're making these intermediates, you're making clothing, and I have pictures of our garments, but like, what is it really? What is it? And that picture of me down on the left was, it was actually, I guess that was June of 2020. So right in the middle of the pandemic, everything had shut down. I had such a great team. They, they were so resourceful. We built a, a warehouse from nothing into our operational facility just since that the start of the pandemic, that picture with the blue barrels is all the cotton pulp. So that cotton pulp can go directly into making this picture over to the right is the cellulosic fiber. And that's the picture in the bottom that's being being extracted through the process. And it essentially is like all this cotton pulp gets cut, converted into this beautiful cellulose fiber that then gets made into garments. This is just as you're developing, you're having to conform. We're using existing technology, existing equipment. And so we we often go to partners to get the material we need to demonstrate out and to make product. Here's some of our product that we're so proud of. I had a designer, Rosie Croex in, in Cincinnati, who took some of our fabric that was made with a partner and, and decided what she could do with it. And then one of our partners is Marabini, and they took that beautiful fiber filament yarn and made these garments. Most excitingly to us is that because this is such a pull from, from the brands, I mean, there's there's like mandates, especially in Europe, it's it's a legislation tsunami. And while you know what helps that with climate technology is that it really allows the pool. Like I can't, I've been a chemical engineer pushing out my innovations to marketing for years. And you need that marketing pool. Well, it's like, if you don't have that marketing pool, it's very hard. It's always that tension between a technology push and a marketing pool. I cannot build these factories fast enough. We cannot get the materials fast enough. This is the first ever commercial launch just last week. It was showcased in the at Zara's flagship store in Milan during the Milan Fat Design Show that was held last week. And what these garments are, 
First, we're excited to, it is Cirque, it is Cirque Time Zara, and, and they've been wonderful partners. Inditex is their mother, is, is the mother company, and Inditex is so committed to sustainability and environment and really finding a sustainable circular solution for, for these textile products that they've partnered with us, and we work together to create this collaboration, this capsule, with their design genius and our and our processing capabilities and this that fabric all i was telling you about the man-made cellulose six that's what this fabric is so this is the first shirt that was made from polyester cotton at this level of scale this many of garments that are available for sale on their on their website and in the store is made from a polyester cotton textile where we separated the cotton, as I showed you earlier, pulled out the polyester, and then this is just now a, a cotton-like product. It's the lyocell. Over here on the right are the products made from polyester. So they then we also took that same from that same and made cotton-like garments and the polyester garments. And we have a our goals as a company. This is our BHAG. Our, our big, hairy, audacious goal is by 2030, we're going to recycle 10 billion garments. And those 10 billion garments represent 10, just 10% of the global apparel markets. And those markets keep growing every year because we grow as people. Economies are emerging from to different levels of, of, of the middle class. And by doing all that, what we've been able to, through life cycle analysis, determine that that will save 100 million trees. So that's our goal, but how are we going to get to that goal? Well, we're we're going to our first. We just closed on our 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 fun B round was last summer, and that was for the engineering to complete the engineering for this first facility, this first commercial facility. And in order to be at scale, you need to run at a certain throughput so that it's ec economically viable. And so we're going the engineering of a 200 ton per day facility. What this is, Florine, our head of process engineering, where he's at right now, is a fraction of that. But it's demonstration facility that we've been able to work with with our partner Andritz and being able to process the textiles to demonstrate and develop our product so that the brands can launch because you need that to pull your technology through. So we're designing from a 200 ton per day facility. Once that's in place, and actually it'll be before it's even placed, so it's like three months later, we will have the blueprint that we're calling that that first facility is Cirque One, and that is the blueprint to rapidly globe on a global basis, copy and paste, and that will be at that thousand tons per day of recycling feedstock. And just to give you an example, I should have that. Like, how many T-shirts does that equal? But like, most of your T-shirts are probably somewhere like like let's call them 250 grams or something. And so it's, you know, I like to say that when I started at the company, we were recycling one t-shirt a day and where we are now is we're recycling a thousand t-shirts a day, but we're not doing this alone. So I mentioned we had a fundraise and in the summer that closed, it was led by Breakthrough Energy. Patagonia led our A round because of their commitment, obvious commitment to the environment. And without these partners, and, and these are investment partners, we wouldn't be able to go after this and solve this challenge. We have a whole set of technology partners. I mentioned Andritz, we we're in their facility and, and working with them hand in hand to use existing, existing infrastructure in a way to prove out our, our technology so that we've evolved from a technology to a recycling process innovation. And we believe that we can wear the same molecules for life. And that's what, what I just showed you and talked about with some of the how, you can really wear the same molecules for life because we have all the clothes we need to make all the clothes we'll ever need. And just to end with that note, I'm gonna put what we call our manifesto in place and have you listen to that. To wear is to waste. And we're too stubborn as a people to believe that it's going to get better. It may come as a shock, but, well, that's the fallacy of fashion. You can't have a single wardrobe all your life. To those who say the die is cast, 
you were right. The world is drained of time, of materials, and most of all, resourcefulness. We're in dire need of a reckoning, a renaissance, because the world is hanging on by a thread. But if we work together, we can turn it around. Let's reverse it, because the world is hanging on by a thread. We're in dire need of a reckoning, a renaissance, and most of all, resourcefulness, of materials, of time. The world is drained. You're right. The die is cast. To those who say, you can't have a single wardrobe all your life, well, that's the fallacy of fashion. It may come as a shock, but it's going to get better. And we're too stubborn as a people to believe that to wear is to waste. Julie, that's fantastic. I love that. Yeah. Great. Perfect. We'll dive into a little bit of Q&A. Talk a little bit about, about the cost curve versus virgin stock. And, and there's a point I want to get to about green premiums in a second. But you're at that stage, as a lot of Series B companies are, that you've got negative net operating margins, I'm assuming, because just that's that's the part of the cycle that you're in, right? You're scaling, you're ramping. We need to get that cost curve down. Talk a little bit where you are today in regards to the cost curve versus virgin stock. And then talk a little bit about what closes, what do you need specifically to close that gap? Sure. So, you know, right now, you know, it's an investment in in technology, proving out the technology in order to to launch what we did last week in Zara. That was a significant amount of material that produced that those number of clothes. And I don't have the number of units in my mind, but I think you can still go online and order a, a portion of that capsule collection. What's what has empowered that and us being able to do it is that we've used an existing supply chain. Now that existing supply chain is not optimal to do what we need to do. So to close the gap, we really need to have the investment. And and when you commercialize these technologies, it's it's not. It's it's not about proving out the technology. It's we've already done that. That's where we're at. So now we're in the early adapter phase where we're crossing the chasm into wide adoption. The fortunate part for us is, I mean, for all of us as a society, is that the brands, the brands who have the power to pull, are stepping up and doing it. I mean, Inditex is the largest producer of apparel, right? They are committed to this change. So what we do is we couple our finance strategy with our business plan strategy, with our commercialization strategy to ensure when you're running a business that you have the capital you need to get to the end point. It takes time to build a a fully integrated facility where we have to sequence it in a way that makes sense. So when we are at scale, and that does require investment, Paul, and it is a new facility. So things like the European incentives for for recycling because of, of the laws that are being in place is what enables that. So you really do need, like legislation helps, but it's really adaption of that legislation and putting the laws in place where people, you basically have to inconvenience people so that they demand that their infrastructure is in place. Right. So let me walk back why that was a misleading question to start with, right? Because... When I use the expression, when people use the expression green premium, right, there is a ne- I think there's a negative connotation to that. Mm-hmm. When people say, well, there's a green premium because the costs are too high to get it to match something that is virgin, virgin stock or business as usual. Right. And, again, we were talking before about we did an interview with Holson, the cement company, this morning and talking about their, their green cement product, their low-carbon cement product versus the traditional bag of cement that, as use a lot of carbon, you should charge a premium for this product. You should charge a premium for for a recycled product because it complies with regulatory environments, because this is something your consumers want to buy. It's because this is something which is good for your business long-term because you may have made this unreal, I don't know if Zara has or Inatech has done this, has made a net zero goal for 2050, 
But unless they do stuff like this, they ain't going to get there. So you as a provider of this product, I would make an argument, you should reach a level of your break where you have comparable margins to Virgin Stock. You Maybe you don't have to compete with price on Virgin Stock. Maybe no. what you've got is a different product. It is a different product. It's a recycled product. And it's a recycled product that performs as well as anything out there today. And it's it's done it with a source that it, it's not just waste of value. It's, it's really ensuring that we can have our lifestyle of changing fashion. We, we like that as a people. I was at the Sustainable Fashion Forum, which was an awesome event this past weekend. And one of the questions, there's, it was, it was raised to Trove. I don't know if you know the business model of Trove. But they, it is a resale platform. And one of the questions came up about profitability and sustainability. And should you be profitable? The answer is absolutely yes, right? We're not... Sorry, you haven't got a choice. You have no choice, maybe, probably. You can't operate a company. I can't pay people. I can't put the infrastructure I need in place without being profitable. And so that's what I meant about the strategy. I mean, you all have other conversations with with supply chains that'll be like, until you're at cost parity, it's not going to scale to mass customization. And that's where you need those early adapters. When you know, We can't build a factory overnight. I mean, you wouldn't want us to because it wouldn't be a safe factory. You have to do it in a way that makes sense and you have to sequence that spending. Fortunately, we're seeing the support between the IRR bill that passed in last summer was monumental. There's money to be that we rightfully so, as a society, as a planet, are putting aside. Europe is an early adapter. They're putting in the regulations. They have they have the 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 backing for companies to start there. U.S. is catch, catching up right behind with the with the IRA to ensure that we're putting we're putting the money where our mouth is, where we're, where everyone wants to go. We want to democratize sustainable fashion, just like high fashion was democratized. But Julie, I think, and again, I'm going to use the technical term and call bullshit on, on this whole notion now that you have to have price parity with the status quo, yes. right? Because there is a, let's use the building industry, for example, right? So building industry, you buy a low carbon cement to build a green building. That green building demands higher rents than a building that is not green. I'm going to, let's use the same comparison. You have a, you have a recycled feedstock, you put it into a garment, right? You can charge a premium for that garment, right? Mm -hmm. Now I get, I get this, I get this, this, there's cost pressures everywhere that this is. I'm I'm sounding I'm sounding like a rich white guy with rich white guy <laughs> solutions right now, right? That's um, all right. And I get and I get I get the the cost I get the cost matters, but I also think that there is this notion that somehow that the only reason you can be profitable or have a viable revenue model is through is through price parity with the status quo. I think we've got to move on from that. And well, I think. Yeah. You're right. It's just like, but I mean, look at biofuels. When the cost of oil dropped so low that it, it made it for biofuel technologies not to be able to continue forward because it, there just was not the consumer picking up or pulling that. I agree with you. There is a green premium and there's a green premium that's going to support getting across the chasm. We want everyone to be able to adapt. Maybe that means we're consuming less. We're, we don't want just encourage mass consumption because we can recycle it. We want people to buy clothes that last. Yeah, I have a I have a 25 year old son that I think is still wearing his very expensive pair of raw denim that he bought when he was in high school. Those are the types of things. And but not everyone can do that. Not everyone can afford to buy that high end clothing that lasts. And we want to be able to get these sustainable materials into everyone. But you're right. What's going to take that is the green premium that's going to cross that chasm. I mean, brands, there is no choice for brands. They have to make the change. They are, they have the power to make the change too. And with them, they're partnering like Inditex has with us, which is Zara. They're partnering with the innovators because I think it was the CEO of Tommy Hilfiger who made a public commitment. I mean, that's one thing when we're going to raise money, we show that the market wants us by the level of commitment the brands have made. Many of them have shown that commitment by directly investing in us. 
The other thing that is happening right now is in order to build a facility, you have to have contracts. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to loan you the money to build this facility if I'm not sure that someone's going to buy that product. So we need, we need the brands, we need the, the makers to commit to, Hey, we're going to buy this material. We validate it. We know that what Cirque is making is the, the best recycled polyester out there, the best cellulosic fiber out there. And they're doing it from a resource that, Hey, we, we're going to either be, we're, we're constricted to, to sell it. We're going to have to downcycle it, cycle it, and we're not willing to burn it due to the cost of, uh, to the environment. And it's actually being banned. So that's the pull. And what the president of Tommy Hilfiger said is like, I don't know how I'm going to reach these goals, but I'm going to set this goal because I need people, people like us to bridge that that gap of not having the infrastructure in place to having the infrastructure in place. Right. So Julie, we've done we've done quite a few quite a few panels and conversations about recycling over the last three or four months. And I, I've got a learning curve, which is I've got hockey stick growth on my learning curve on recycling, right? It's fascinating to me. The one thing that is blatantly clear, particularly with things like plastic recycling and building recycling, for example, is that the 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 margins of the of the margins of a circ- of circularity revolve around how much distance you have to transport your feedstock. Mm-hmm. Whether this is whether whether this is wood pulp, whether this is plastics, whether what whatever it is, if the the rule of thumb is you have to travel more than hundred miles in terms of cost, putting the CO two of the transportation to one side. The economics get the economics get crushed. Talk a little bit about the the transportation or the feedstock element for what you're doing, right? Is transporting feedstock expensive? Um, and what does that mean to the margins if you have to transport feedstock over long, long distances? Well, I mean, we put that in our life cycle analysis and we put that in our in our financial modeling. And that's obviously a component to that. Unfortunately, there's so much feedstock out there that that is the beauty is we will be able to get the feedstock where our facility is located. Right. Because again, the one of the, again, the problem we say with plastic recycling is that it's so expensive to move plastic, plastic that you need to have, it's not about having four or five mega plants in the United States and transporting things hundreds of miles for those mega plants. It is hundreds of plants around, around several plants around Chicago, several plants around Houston, several plants around Atlanta to be able to do that sort of thing. In terms of your footprint, when you think about this, let's use just the US context, do you envision dozens and dozens and dozens of plants around major cities, or are you going to be more of a centralised hub model? I think as we grow, like 15 years down the road, it could be more because we want to recycle where that feedstock is and you're right in transporting it. But there's also innovation in transportation, right? So when we look at our financial modeling, it's not, it is a, a big consideration for logistics, both on the offtake side and on the feedstock side. However, it, it's, it's more about positioning our central hubs, as you would call them, in strategic global locations. So our first facility needs to be up and running because we are an organization that is is before revenue. So we're we're investing in this, and so with that, we have to keep the lights on, right? And we are doing really well at that and making so much traction, but we have to we're really going to be a profitable business once we have our facility. So it's all about how can we, how can we dem- demonstrate this at a large enough scale that we get that return on investment that you talk about and the green premium will help. And you're right. It should be a green premium. And the br- brands who are, are committing to take the off takes, I mean, it's, it's an auction. I mean, people want what we have. And because of that, when you have little, little, when you don't have as much supply and you have a tremendous amount of demand, it's just the law of economics, it's going to be more expensive. Everyone wants it, right? Yes, sure. I would love to have my, my EV vehicle at buy it for $5,000, but I'm making an investment because I can, but not everyone can. So, so, right. And so we'll have this first facility 
as a way it is just it's the the lily pad that we're going to be able to leapfrog and jump off of each each sector so we'll put one in it's 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 europe or in the us and asia those are the three hubs that we will have and then as soon as we it'll be that rapid cut and paste i i estimated that we're going to need 15 factories just to process all the the textiles that are out there Got it. Does it make sense? I mean, I was just the thing I was talking when you talk about Zara and obviously in feed and Zara and feedstock is a logical place for you to get feedstock is partnering with Target Zara, et cetera, and, and, and dealing with their unsold, their unsold inventory. And, and tell me, are they what is what are companies like Zara doing with it with most of their unsold inventory currently? Right. So I will I will say that what they do is and this is where the legislation has been put in place. I mean, you have, I'll take, you have brands that need to protect their their brand, that the marketing value is their brand. And what they may do is destroy it. And they need to destroy it in as environmentally friendly way for unsold material. And, or they're going to, it's the, the, the lower quality grade. And it, erodes the brand if they put that out. And so what they do now, unfortunately, is just what I said earlier is landfilling or or incinerating. But the, the, the commitment there is to work to establish that infrastructure. You have to have what we're doing. Right. So like an organic... Yeah, but there's okay. things like, I'll use Patagonia. They're doing, they have Warnware. So Patagonia has where and and different brands are are doing this where you're seeing the barely worn or the returns that come back that are being now where before it didn't seem to make sense from a business standpoint to actually put it back in the system because it's it takes money and energy to put it back in the system for resale and so where that's now going to and, and there is so much innovation popping up where there's second hand I wouldn't even call them second hand, but second second options. It's not the first place for the point of retail or point of sale. It's a second place. It's a secondary place. So I met a, a company this weekend. They're called Designers on Demand and you know, Designers by Demand. And what it is, is like the Under Armors, they have excess stock. They'll send it to this entity who's basically an online consignment store. And so... Those are the things to do. You need a lot of that infrastructure in place. Right. But again, I'm, I'm assuming someone like Zara doesn't send things off to Nordstrom Rack or to to, to, to the, down, the value, down the value chain. I just think, again, I, I look at the world through, through a very simplistic lens of mm-hmm. low, where's the low-hanging fruit? Yes. And for me, if you've done this, you've done this deal with you've done this deal with Zara, you've got these other wonderful brand, other partners you've you've worked with. Sounds like the low-hanging fruit is instead of sending it to the landfill, send it to us. Oh, exactly. It is. And that's what I mean, that's I'm sure you're I'm sure you're working on that now. I mean, yes, I'm sure there's yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is right. And then I mean you're spot on. That's why I was telling you over over the pandemic during the shutdown when the retailers were receiving so much inventory and no one was shopping. They they had to send them somewhere. So we were getting calls every day. Can you take this? Can you take that? Well, we could take some of it, but because we don't have the 15 factories yet, we can't take all of it. Got it. And 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 again, is that is so that's the bottleneck for you, really? So it's not feeds to access to feedstock, because it sounds like again, me thinking about this simplistically, that's two calls, one to target, one to Zara, and you've got as much right. feedstock as you need, right? Right. It's actually the processing facilities to actually yes. break, put steel on the ground for those plants, wherever yes. those plants may be. Yes, we need the capacity. And with the Got capacity, it. we need the investment. Just could talk a little bit about the complexities of these of these advanced recycling techniques, right? Because again, there's you mentioned in our pre-call that you're you're generating about an eighty-five to ninety percent yield on this mm-hmm. on this sort of thing. Yes. And I think, and I think you've done a very very good job at at simplifying what is not a simple process in terms of getting 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 to that raw that that raw polymer, right? Talk a little bit about the complexities of using a chemical slash mechanical process. Right and mechanical process to extract these polymers, particularly when things like like dyes are involved. And in I know with plastics in particular, if you've got calcium carbonate in there, it can screw up your, your the, the 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 mechanical recycling machinery. Talk a little bit more about the complexity of how difficult this actually is. 
Yes, I'm smiling a little bit just because sometimes the simplest innovation comes from making it, decoupling all the complexities. And it's it's not obvious. I mean, that's our innovation to combine this chemical mechanical advanced recycling process for polycotton. And when you hear about mechanical recycling deteriorating or the polymer quality like the calcium carbonate, that's because that mechanical recycling for plastics means melting that that plastic or that polymer at really high temperatures. And that's hard. That's hard on a it's hard on a body, right? Well, you just it's it's just it's hard on it. And so and then if you have other things that are going to break it down. You're trying to keep the intrinsic behavior of that plastic, but put it in a different form. And those stresses are what degrade. It's those constant high temperature stresses. What we're doing is, and if you, if you I like to use, because a lot of people say, well, can you just put the cotton back to cotton? Well, think of that favorite cotton t-shirt that you have from college that you will not let go of. And it's threadbare. That, that, ships, that, shout, that ships out, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> you got rid of them all. Right? <laughs> my, my partner has not. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't think I could I could make enough quilts of the t-shirts, but they get bare. And that's because the cellulose, every time you wash it, the cotton, which is cellulose, it, it continues to get chopped down. Now, the beauty of the, the lyocell fiber, it's a man-made cellulosic fiber, traditionally from trees, from wood pulp, but now take it to cotton. And it's it's a form that can stay in its and what it needs to be over and over. So it truly is an infinite recycling process. Got it. That went by so quickly. Let's get you out of here. Outside of your very audacious goals, what defines success for you in the next five years? Oh, I think what defines success is the circuit is a verb. Everyone wants to circ their clothes. Circuit is a verb. Like that. Yes. And, and by the way, is that what have you called the process circ? Is, is that is that what you're calling it? You actually want, do you have a name for the process or just yes, yes. Yeah. I like that. Yes, circuit is our process. <laughs> we circuit. So we circuit you circuit. You circuit. Unfortunately, climate transforms a little bit wordy for you ever to become a verb, but I like I like what you've done. This. <laughs> Julie, thank you. This was this was fantastic. Oh, you're welcome. Awesome you're conversation. Welcome. We'll have you back whenever you whenever you want. And just good luck with everything. All right. Thanks so much, Paul Fram. Thank you.